You're listening to the Plane Talking UK podcast, the UK-based podcast written by a passenger to anyone. And here are your hosts, Carl Stebbing and Matt Smith. Well, hello and welcome <laughs> to episode number 70 of the Plane Talking UK podcast. 70. And you know, I may have noticed we have a new jingle. Slightly, yes. yes. I've arrived, everyone. It's official. I am, I am now officially part of the furniture. <laughs> yes, Matt is fully fledged. He is part of the furniture. So, so one of one of Matt's good friends uh, done, has done us a new little uh, mm. little jingle there, yes. little intro, which is nice. So we are at, like we said, episode number seventy. Yes, yes. I'm still very sunburnt from Riyadh. How about you? I know. I didn't realise until <laughs> until I actually got home that I'd burnt the backs of my legs. Ouch! Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, we are still uh, obviously very much. Uh, on a high from, cool, yeah. uh, from the weekend at Riyadh, yeah, the Royal International Air Tattoo. It was, yeah. We had a uh, fantastic uh, Sunday there, didn't we, and Saturday mm. and Sunday. Mm. Uh, Matt joined me on the Sunday. You came yes. up via the train, the choo-choo oh, train. I know. I very. I, it was a bit of a different world, though, in comparison to the trains that we're used to. I'm, I'm sorry to say in this part of the world, which uh, where we, where it's uh, Abelio, Greater Anglia, and... Uh, they were, shall we say, the uh, Norwich to London train is not the most luxurious vehicle I've ever had the misfortune <laughs> to be on. It was a real, you get, get to sort of first grace, what Great Western, and it's like sitting on an aeroplane. Oh, oh I mean, it was amazing. It's like air conditioning and, you know, nice snacks. And it was a different world. And I, and I was waiting for you on the platform. I know you were. It was very exciting. <laughs> yes. It was just like, I turned up at the station. I think, right, well, I hope, well, I hope I'm at the right one. And there he was. I know. I was there waiting there for you in the, in the good choice on yeah, Good choice uh, on the uh, gammon, by the way. Yes, yes, I did. <laughs> I arranged for Matt to have mm. a very nice gammon and egg. It was uh, quite late he, by the time I finally arrived, yeah. so thank you for waiting up for me. <laughs> but uh, we had lovely accommodation uh, mm. for Riyadh. We had a very nice bed and breakfast. Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. Book that again for next yeah, year. Very, yeah, very, very nice indeed. Um, bit hilly. Mm. Your poor little van. <laughs> the van was slightly challenged. It was by a the first girls. gear job. It let's was put a it first that way. gear job. Yeah, <laughs> trying to get up this. Hill. You get approaching the top. You think we're in first gear and we're we're not at the top yet. No, and you can hear no. the no- note of the engine <laughs> starting to lower, and you just think, uh oh. Are we going to get up here? Yeah. Oh, I know, but, it, but we managed. We we had uh, like I said, we had a very good day, son, mm. didn't we? And uh, mm. that was your first uh, first react, big yeah, ever. Yeah, yeah. Your first react, man. You thought... Well, it, just the sheer scale. That's the thing that, that mm. completely blew me away. Uh, you know, because I mean, as I've mentioned several times before, I've done Ducksford and I've been to mm. um, um, uh, Waddington and things like that. But it's just uh, it was as I say, a completely different world to anything. I was so huge, I was knackered by the it end is of the huge. day. <laughs> I think because uh, uh, we met up with uh, Daniel Hannington um, on from Saturday, DH Aviation yeah. on Saturday, and also saw him on Sunday. Oh. And uh, Dan yeah. had put something I should just on. stress at this point, because he'd gone off to go and get an interview. Thanks to Daniel yes. for that. Obviously. Thank- We're yeah. not playing that out this week. That's in, that's in a few weeks' time. Yeah. Um, but uh, So off he went to go and get his interview, left me in the media tent, putting together what that very brief show that we uh, we put up um, last <laughs> yeah. week. So uh, apologies that it was a short show, as I say, but uh, it was... We did um, our best. We did have a lot yeah. on, on, obviously, and we want to get as many interviews. So we've got about... You say work out about 13, 13 interviews, interviews to yeah. To. We've we got, have, a little, yeah. got a little section instead. We haven't got any pip this week, which no. is fair enough. We've given, we're given, given a few weeks off. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. He hasn't got any homework for a couple of weeks. Um, and we're going to, in, in his usual slot, we're going to put out some of the interviews from yep, from we React. So we've got those to look forward to. We have indeed. I can give you their names if you like. Uh, 
No, we'll save that. We'll, we'll save keep that an element suspense. of surprise. Okay. But no, Daniel, Daniel, thanks, uh, thanks for your help uh, over the weekend. On Saturday, Dan gave me some very good tips on how cool, to use yeah. my new lens yeah. uh, for the camera, which enabled me to get some good photos, because Daniel is obviously a very good photographer. Mm. And uh, also, he gave me the heads up on the interview I'd done with Tracy Curtis-Taylor, mm. um, yes. which was very good of him as well. So thanks I was Dan. left abandoned in the uh, in the in immediate I feel too sorry for me there were tea and there biscuits there was tea and biscuits there, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we also met up with Matt Matty Fab as well uh, we met up with Matty Fab as well from the uh, from one of our listeners so uh, hi to you as well Matty thanks for uh, meeting up with me and Pip on the uh, Saturday and of course we also, yes we got to meet Pip we actually yeah we got to meet <laughs> the legend that is Pilot yeah. Pip after he's, all he's these a lot weeks. younger than I thought he'd be <laughs> Which made me feel not great. I've got to be honest. I, I think I was kind of expecting a Pip to turn up in a suit and tie. Right. Okay. Being, being a in that case, you were very sorely disappointed. You'd be yeah. very disappointed. To be fair, he did turn up in your t-shirt. He did. He <laughs> not Pip, your actual t-shirt. Well, He'd stolen from the room. No. But Pip, uh, Pip was wearing his plain talking UK mm. t-shirt, which is which is how I found him when I got there. <laughs> Big giveaway. I know. Just thinking, has Matt arrived? No, no, no. Wait. No, yeah. no. We've, we've got Pip, but yeah. no, we uh, we met. Uh, yes, yeah, so we met Pip as well. Mm. Um, and we had a brilliant, like I said, we had a fantastic weekend. The weather was really cool, good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Both days in both the end. Both days. We were, what, we were worried about Sunday, weren't yeah, we? Yeah, we were. Um, but that, uh, that turned out to be very good. And it was so, like, like Matt said, there was so much aircraft there. Yeah. Uh, Hence the third see. degree burns all around. Yes, really. yes. But, yes. Uh, there we are. Ah, so we have got those interviews coming later. Yes. Uh, we've got uh, the usual um, commercial uh, aviation news and military news. Mm. And uh, yeah, we we've got a lot to cram in. We, we have got to cram in, yes. yes. So just to give you the date check, it is the 24th of July. Yes, we're actually recording on a Friday this we week are. because of, uh, I'm working on Saturday. You are. Is Where, where are you going Sunday. tomorrow? I'm going to Cambridge. Cambridge. Cambridge, yes. Very nice. Yes, and, and according to the uh, the uh, weather weather app that I've got, it's uh, saying something like a 95% chance of rain in Cambridge tomorrow, yeah. which is going to be great for my, these poor foreign students who are going to uh, going punting. Oh, punting. Very nice. Very nice in Cambridge. Yes. So we're going to kick off the show then, as we do, with our rundown of the weekly news from around the world and the UK. So if you're ready, Matt. Oh, very. Let's go. Hairy, then. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Any golfers listening? We were just talking about golf during that jingle. <laughs> right, so kicking off the first story this week. I'm in so much trouble. I know. <laughs> is on the Travel Weekly site. And uh, Airbus, we've covered the A380 a mm. few few times in the past, past few episodes now. And so Airbus have confirmed then that uh, plans for a next gen A380 Super Jumbo. Airbus is to go ahead with plans to build a new generation version of the Airbus A380 Super Jumbo. President and Chief Executive Fabrice Brigier told the Sunday Times that the A380neo, which will have new engines, could be ready for sale in five years. We will move to the A380neo type. You can say that absolutely. Uh, We will need it between 2020 and 2025, he said. As well as the new engines, uh, the new version would have better wings, which will be made at Airbus's plant in Broughton, North Wales. Uh, The Neo will cost $3 billion to develop. 
The current 275 million Airbus A380 can carry up to 600 passengers in full density, uh, 150 more than the Boeing 747 uh, jumbo jet. Brugere said Airbus had not decided whether the fuselage on the new version would be extended to provide more seats, but that the company would not do a stretched version for one airline. New engines will help cut uh, the double-deckers aircraft's operating costs and the AA380 program uh, has struggled to find customers. Uh, One carrier, Emirates, accounts for about half of the 300 aircraft ordered so far. Yeah, Emirates have got quite a lot of those. Yeah. Uh, without more sales, the production line has only enough work to last till the end of the decade, according to the newspaper. Brigere said he was convinced uh, there is a market for a new A380 because trends in aviation with fast rising passenger numbers and slot constraints at airports in many countries favouring bigger aircraft. The air passenger market is doubling every 15 years. Airlines simply can't rely on flying more planes more often. We have to have larger aircraft, he said. How can you imagine crowded Heathrow in 2030 without the A380? This is the same for New York, Washington, Los Angeles, Frankfurt and China in a few years. I must say I'm surprised by the picture. The fact they were saying, I didn't realise they were building them in in Wales. There's parts all around around Europe. But I I kind of expect, no it has got the the winglets on the end doesn't it? Oh yes, yes, the A three thirties or mm. the A three eighty. Sorry, has got uh, the winglets, same as the all the Airbus um, yeah. family have got those. Um, the, the newer Airbus have the sharklets, right? Uh, okay. Very similar to the Boeing with the um, right yeah. sharklets at the end. Hmm. I just thought they, I thought they encompassed more of the end of the wing. I didn't realise they were quite such a, a small addition, certainly on that photo. Something to add on to this, Matt, mm. and you, you'll um, you'll agree with me here. These um, these Airbus A three eighties are a big aircraft. They are, they are very wide. Yeah. And um, I think uh, one of the things that is going to have to uh, that is going to have to change as well for a lot of other airports who who want to use this um, mm. aircraft, uh, they're going to have to alter their uh, you know their taxiway widths and a lot of the stands that right. these aircraft go to have to be made because you know when when these aircraft have, have, were brought online many years ago now. Mm. Um, there was a lot of changes that had to be made at uh, you know at Heathrow and Gatwick right. to enable this aircraft to. To be, you know, to, to be able to, 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 to be serviced there, right? Yeah. So uh, all these other, all the other airports around the world that uh, may in the future want to have this aircraft fly into their the airport would yeah. have to make the same alterations. Yeah. Cool. Oh so next story. Busy times. Next. Next story. Is, yes, this is a Ryanair story. This is on ITV News, uh, and it actually touches on a story that we covered a couple of weeks back now, mm. uh, and that's uh, Ryanair is planning to ban duty-free alcohol on UK to Ibiza flights. Um, Ryanair said that the comfort and safety of our passengers and crew was its top priority. Uh, budget airline Ryanair has banned passengers from taking duty-free alcohol on flights f- from the UK to Ibiza. The no-frills airline said the move was part of a bid to improve the comfort and safety of passengers on the route. Travellers will either have to stow the alcohol in the hold free of charge or throw it away before flight. Throw it away? <laughs> I'm sure they'll bag it up and, and sell it. Oh dear, the airline also <laughs> yeah, indeed, yeah. The airline also warned boarding gates will be monitored and anyone acting antisocially or trying to hide alcohol will not be allowed to board. In May, six drunk Brits were arrested in Spain because of their behaviour on a Ryanair flight. Whilst this month five British men were escorted off an easyJet plane travelling from Bristol to Ibiza, uh, Ryanair has previously banned alcohol on flights from Glasgow 
to Ibiza. Uh, a message from Ryanair to passengers flying to Ibiza said customers will not be allowed to carry alcohol on board and all cabin baggage will be searched at the boarding gates. Any alcohol purchased in the airport shops or elsewhere must be packed carefully in a suitable item of cabin baggage uh, which will be tagged at the gate and then placed in the aircraft hold free of charge. If the bag is unsuitable for placing in the hold then customers will be required to dispose of the alcohol in the bins provided. Uh, boarding gates will be carefully monitored and customers conti- continuing to show any signs of antisocial behaviour or attempting, con- attempting to conceal alcohol will be denied travel without refund or compensation. Ryanair said it took the decision after consulting with customers and airports. Passengers will still be able to buy alcohol during the flight. Wow. Well, I, again, I'm, I mean, we said at great length a couple of weeks ago, I'm really not surprised. I'm surprised something like this hasn't, hasn't, hasn't already happened. There's been, I mean, you, you'll agree with me here, there's been a lot of instances in the last sort of month or two of, you know, people being unruly on flights. Whether, I, I just read one this morning. Yeah, whether, whether it's because um, we're more aware of it and the media have now picked up on it. I mean, it may be that the incident levels are about the same as they were. Perhaps it's just that it is a story that the media has now picked up and it's becoming more commonplace to report on such matters, especially given that today, which is Friday, they say it's the busiest air, air flight day, they yeah, reckon. It is, it, yeah, Because yeah. it's everybody weekend, going away. Because yeah, uh, obviously kids the are all kids broken, are all up, broken yeah. up from school, yeah. Yeah, well, there we are. Not really a lot to say about that. As I say, I'm not surprised. And and this does seem like an obvious route, Ibiza, obviously, because it, it unfortunately it does attract a certain clientele, shall we say, because they're all off to Ibiza clubbing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> not us, not us. No, though. no, sadly not. No. So next story uh, is on the Mirror website. Uh, as in the newspaper mirror, and the headline British Airways' bigger dreamliners will make their debut on the route to Delhi in India in the autumn. So the first of the stretched Boeing 787-9s head to India, and 18 of those um, are getting a makeover with with the improved economy seats and entertainment systems. Delhi is the first destination for British Airways' new stretched jet-lag-busting Dreamliner. The flag carrier will fly uh, to the Indian capital five times a week on the bigger Boeing 787-9 from October the 25th. At 20 feet longer than its uh, 787-8 predecessor, of which BA has eight, there's now room for the airline's elite new first-class cabin, which is not on the smaller planes. The turn left section will feature suites with personal wardrobe space, uh, device chargers, uh, a new seat and in-flight entertainment uh, handset and bespoke soft leather and fabric trim. And of course, some of the best food and drink in the skies. Lead-in economy uh, return fares to Delhi start from £632. Next up for the longer 787 is Abu Dhabi and Muscat. Oh, I've been there, Muscat, very nice, in Oman. Mm. Uh, A combined flight and Kuala Lumpur. Mm -hmm. Uh, BA will eventually have 42 Dreamliners. The uh, revolutionary 787s are made largely from composite material and passengers enjoy a more spacious and airy plane with wider aisles and higher ceilings, plus mood lighting and larger windows offering views of the horizon from every seat. Changes they feel rather than see include moisture cleaner air at lower cabin pressures, uh, five to 6,000 feet rather than a typical 8,000 feet, which allows more oxygen to be absorbed into the blood and to reduce the chance of dehydration and headaches. Mm. 
The physical flight is better too, as 787s offer a smoother, quieter journey thanks to noise-reducing engines and wings that counter turbulence. Uh, all those factors combine to help the effects of jet lag. There's good news for BA passengers on its Boeing 747s too. The airline is upgrading 18 of the super of the of the jumbo jets from September with uh, more business class seats and all cabins get a facelift and a new Panasonic EX3 next generation in-flight entertainment system. The new system provides more than 130 movies, 400 TV programs on larger high-resolution screens with a tablet-style interface. Passengers in premium economy will get a universal power socket to every seat, while economy travellers will now have a personal USB socket to power phones and tablets. Seats in premium economy and economy will get more comfortable foam covers like those on the new Airbus A380 Super Jumbo and Dreamliner aircraft, plus the same colour palette for fittings. The spruced-up planes will operate on selected flights to New York, Chicago, Lagos, uh, Dubai, Boston, Ryder and Kuwait. So that's excellent news then mm. uh, for people travelling with BA, uh, especially if you go if you're going to fly to uh, Dubai uh, to um, uh, India uh, in Delhi. If mm. you're going to go there, you're going to be travelling on the uh, Dash Nine, wow. which Absolutely. will be nice. nice. Yeah, it, and the picture there, the file picture there, which mm. that is, yeah, it looks quite nice with the, with the BA logo on mm. the uh, on the Dash Nine. Uh, but that. Uh, Level of comfort looks quite nice, though, with the soft leather furnishings. I and know, uh, but you know, I'm not, <sighs> the chances of me getting anywhere near a BA flight of next to nothing, let, al- <laughs> let alone travelling in business class. You know, to enjoy the bulk of it. Well, me and Pip went on business class on Saturday. Yeah, no, albeit on an Airbus A three eighteen, but it was a BA, and it was also on the ground. Yeah, that yeah. was a difference. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I presume you got an interview, did you? Yes, oh, we have. We have an interview yeah, coming good. up. Uh, well, I look forward to that. hearing that one. Yes, yes absolutely. Okay, on to the next story. This is on the B Daily website, bdaily.co.uk, and uh, the headline is uh, "United Airlines celebrates 20th anniversary of Manchester to Newark service." Uh, United Airlines has marked 20 years since it first started offering flights from Manchester to New York. Monday the 20th of July saw the airline celebrating two decades of flights between Manchester Airport and Newark Liberty International Airport on the other side of the Atlantic. Manchester Airport's commercial director Stephen Turner commented, We would like to congratulate United Airlines on reaching this fantastic milestone of 20 years service to New York. Through their daily New York and Washington DC services, United provide our passengers with the opportunity to fly direct to these two hugely popular destinations, as well as the ability to connect onto their extensive route network. The airline offers the Manchester to Newark service with its fleet of Boeing 757-200 aircraft, each of which features 16 flat bed seats in business class and 153 in economy. The Managing Director of Sales for United Airlines in the UK and Ireland, Bob Schumacher, said United is proud to celebrate 20 years of service from Manchester and we would like to thank our customers and the local travel trade community for their continuing support. Our daily non-stop service offers customers in the North West access to not only New York City but also to hundreds of other destinations throughout the Americas via United's Newark Liberty Hub. Sorry, I was just reading the story there. Mm. United Airlines uh, in America, yeah. um, they're one of the airlines that um, that I'd like to personally try, yeah. try and get to go on you, in, you've in, not in the States. I've before. not flown with United, no. but um, 
the airplane geeks uh, tend to knock them quite a bit oh, on right. their a bit like we on do their Ryan show, Air, like we do Ryanair. Right yeah. yeah. um, but no, I'd, I'd like to. I'd like to sample United and see what. So what's uh, the seven five seven? The seven five seven is a fantastic aircraft. It's right. number two on my favourite list is of um, after the TriStar. Obviously, obviously yes. um, the seven five seven two hundred is um, is a very very overpowered aircraft. Right. Na- it's a narrow single aisle aircraft. Okay. Um, which uh, sadly, there's not a huge, there's still a lot, but there's not as many as there used to be years ago. They're quite mm. an old aircraft now, but they're very, very um, robust um, aircraft indeed. Mm. Um, I've flown on them many times. Thompson Airways they in the UK like have got yeah. um, some of the ex Britannia Airways okay. 757s in their fleet. Um, but no. So, I mean, so it's a quality aircraft that they're using to, 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 oh, yeah. to, to cover this route with then. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so for, and Manchester actually is, is not a bad airport to fly from mm. as well. Yeah, uh, so that's um, that's pretty good. That's pretty it cool. Is, yeah, it is a nice story. So next story on the hmm, Colinbrook Colinbrook in uh, Colinbrook Views website. Colinbrook. Never heard of this one. It's no, another flashy no. new website. You really have uh, all the stops <laughs> out today, haven't you? <laughs> so so another BA story. British yeah. Airways uh, to conduct trials of steeper landings into Heathrow from September this year. Why? <laughs> so British Airways will conduct steeper descent trials into Heathrow from September the 17th, it has been confirmed. Heathrow stakeholders have been told that BA will go ahead with trials of the steeper descents into Heathrow to reduce noise. Earlier information suggested that the trials would take place as early as May. Speaking at a Airbus environmental briefing in Toulouse, BA's head of environment, Jonathan Council, said the airline would conduct four trial flights with the Airbus A380 during May using a slightly steeper approach to the runway, 3.2 degrees rather than the normal 3 degrees approach. There's been uh, little public disclosure of the scheduling of the trials or what will uh, what the impact will be. The Heathrow Airport cons- uh, Consultative Thank you Committee uh, was told it's been a long day. It has yes. was told on Wednesday that the uh, trials were set to take place from September the seventeenth. It's not clear at this stage how many planes will be affected on and on which uh, what routes they'll be. BA has said the trials could see planes up to 500 feet higher, 10 miles out, and combined with other measures, could see noise levels reduced by up to 5 decibels, the level at which people detect a a perceptible difference in noise levels. Technical advisors at LAANC, the Local Authorities Aircraft Noise Council, dispute the claim. It believes the uh, improvement will be negligible at best, and mm. th- to those on the approach, an expert uh, expects uh, no difference at all for those living closest to the airport. Hmm. Now I can't see if the, I can't see how. I mean, they say that five. Five to you know decibels lower is detectable a detectable difference by the human ear, but mm. when you when you when you're talking those kind of decibel levels, five decibel, five decibels is going to make no difference whatsoever, is it? And surely it's not going to work unless they say for fifteen minutes worth of arrivals, put all planes on approach with that strategy. Because otherwise, the ones that are coming in under normal thing, and surely that's going to cancel out the effect of those coming into. Unless they get every single aircraft. Well, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. It it seems like a a brutally nonsense um, experiment, frankly. I can't. Plus, plus, if you live in London, you know you've got two of the largest airports Mm. in Europe on your doorstep. Yeah. 
Um, you should um, you should be well. I'd be I'd love it. Yeah, I know. But I would love to be on the flight. You're not normal. I know. I know. (laughs) I've often said this. I've said this before that I would love to live on the flight path to an airport. Mm. Really? Yeah. I think even very surely even you would get fed fed up of it. No, 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 not at all. Oh dear. Anyway, I don't think that I don't think Gemma will allow that for many many years. To be no, fair. no, no. Uh, anyway, uh, Manchester Evening News is the next story, and the headline is Thomas Cook flight forced to divert back to Manchester Airport after suspected bird strike. More than three hundred passengers headed to Hagara. Is it Hagara in Egypt? Hagara. Headed to Hagara. Let's say more than 300 passengers headed to Egypt returned to Manchester this afternoon after a general emergency. Um, the bird, thought to be a wood pigeon, struck the fan blade of the aircraft shortly after takeoff around 2.30pm today. Uh, the captain declared a general emergency and turned back to Manchester, where the Boeing 767 was met by emergency services at around 3 p.m. Uh, passengers uh, bound for Egypt were offloaded and are still at Manchester Airport awaiting a replacement flight. A Thomas Cook spokesman said that it was unlikely passengers would have felt the strike and that the only damage was to the engine fan blade. The engine did not need to be switched off, he said. Um, he added that the birds, that a bird hit the engine during the takeoff, and the captain chose to turn round. We are now investigating the damage, um, the investigation that will be repaired by our engineers to ensure it is fit to fly. We look, we look out, we always, we will always look after our passengers, provide refreshments and food, and make every effort to ensure that they can continue with their onward journey. Uh, a Manchester Airport spokesman said a Thomas Cook Airlines flight bound for Egypt returned to Manchester Airport this afternoon following a suspected bird strike. It landed safely with 339 passengers and crew on board. Well, it's something that hap- <coughs> it's something that happens. Is it, he it always happen. though? Oh, no, not at all. No. no, I mean, especially with bird strikes and stuff like yeah. this. You know. It, they, 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 they always turn back and you know Mind even you, after a bird strike you take that into consideration I, I experienced a bird strike on BT um, <laughs> my, my coach uh, I was doing 50, bus? I was doing 50, 50 miles an hour down uh, the dual uh, down the dual carriageway bit um, uh, on the A12 heading towards Ipswich and um, and the pigeon just decided it was going to land down because I hit the pigeon at 50 miles an hour it's completely smashed the grill up on my on, on the front of my coach and it's got—I mean, it's got to—it's got to be repaired. Um, so I guess at fifty miles an hour, uh, the damage that, that hitting a wood pigeon uh, will actually do—I I mean, I, I guess you know—at a greater speed, especially being sucked in by the engine. Mm. Um, yes, I mean, I, I, having said that, it could do quite significant damage, couldn't it? Thomas Cook, mm. quick bit of uh, info for you. Yes. So Thomas Cook have—they've uh, got three of these seven six seven Boeing seven six seven three hundreds in their fleet. Um, fairly old aircraft now. Um, mm. One of the sort of more older aircraft in the uh, Thomas Cook fleet. Um, but Thomas Cook have also got seven five seven two hundreds and three hundreds in their fleet, mm. and have also got eighteen Airbus A three twenty ones, which is the um, sort of the larger single aisle Airbus mm. aircraft in their fleet. But uh, a very popular popular air, airline, Thomas Cook, in the UK and uh, around Europe. Many flights here, there, and everywhere. Do you see your phone beeping? Yes, I'm turning it Terrible. off now. I'm very sorry. So <laughs> new, moving on to the next story. Uh, as Phone's chosen, off. 
the phone's off. <laughs> As chosen by me, uh, I found this one especially for myself this week, Did this story. Right. On the Mail Online site, this one. And uh, says it's regarding an airline I hold very dear oh, to me, my dear. heart. And it's, of course, Air Malta. Uh, <laughs> and the headline, is this the best economy class perk of all time? Air Malta pampers passengers in coach with free head and foot massages. Hmm. <laughs> the National Carrier's in-flight pampering service launched uh, last week. Sky Spa is uh, all thanks to a partnership with Myoka Spa. Passengers flying from Gatwick will receive the perk on selected flights. <gasps> I'm flying from Gatwick in September with Air Malta. Well, mm -hmm. actually, actually, I'm flying yeah. home with Air Malta. From Are you? Right. Oh. Perhaps they're not doing it the other way. Yes. No, EasyJet <laughs> out, though. I'm oh, flying EasyJet out Air Malta home. <laughs> oh, ooh. Okay. Oh, right. Well, I'm looking forward to it now. Air Malta may have just introduced the most luxurious economy class perk in the sky. The Mediterranean country's national carrier is pampering passengers on its lower class with massages, a service that most first class travellers will never get to experience. Relaxing head rubs and hand massages are now being delivered free of charge. On flights between London Gatwick Airport and uh, Luca Airport in Malta, two professional therapists will welcome those on board with various product samples and personalised head, neck and foot massages. The service called Sky Spa began on flights KM116 and KM117 last week. Passengers also receive a Moyoka Spa's voucher for €20, Euros, or £14, and listen to relaxing music through their headphones. According to the airline, the Sky Spa will be available on selected flights in partnership with the local spa brand Myoka Spas. Air Malta also says that this sort of offering is just a beginning and similar projects to enhance the customer experience will be launched in the near future. The carrier announced as well the launch of the partnership on its Twitter account. Wow, I, I'm really looking forward to flying Air Malta so is, now. Is that one of your <laughs> is that one of your flight numbers? Actually, KM one one six is our outbound. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, the KM one one seven is our inbound. Hope. I know, I know. There it's might like, be hope. I'm really looking forward to it now. Oh. Fly me. Plus, I've got the air show to look forward oh, to there as well. Yeah. But yes. there you go. Yes. So, next story, very I, serious I th one. I though. think really what should happen is that obviously Gemma should have both of the head massages by way of compensation for the fact that you're abandoning her while she's on holiday to go to an air show. Yeah, well, mm. <laughs> I'm surprised you've got Trust away with me, that. I'm they, not going to lie. <laughs> they would not want to go near her feet. And, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> wow Oops. he's brave ladies and gentlemen. i know you're in luck she doesn't listen she doesn't listen no. to the show no, <laughs> See, my, anyway my uh it is the bournemouth echo is the next story he says digging carlos out of a hole and the headline is laser shone at flyby plane near bournemouth airport really this is not people good. are still doing indeed, this indeed indeed uh, air passengers and crew were put at risk when an illegal laser was pointed at a flyby flight on monday night police were informed after a pilot noticed the green light at 10 past 10 as the plane approached Bournemouth Airport. Lasers can detract pilots as they attempt to land, potentially putting lives at risk. Green lasers are said to be the stronger of than the red ones and their lights can expand as they travel, um, possibly blocking a pilot's view. Such acts are now against the law and the offender has been criticised by a spokesman woman for Bournemouth Airport. She said shining a laser at an aircraft in flight is a serious risk to the safety of passengers and crew and this is a criminal offence. 
Any reports of laser attacks are reported to the Civil Aviation Authority who will investigate the matter. The National Police Air Service was made aware of the incident and later tweeted, Green laser shone at aircraft as we approached airport from Christchurch area. Illegal and dangerous. Further inquiries to be made. This is... This morning they added, this is not the first time and sadly won't be the last. Dorset police said that the incident had been reported, but they are not involved in further inquiries. Earlier this year, a Southampton security guard appeared in court after admitting... Really? A Southampton security guard admitted in court after after admitting shining a laser pen beam at planes approaching Southampton Airport whilst bored during coffee breaks at work. That's not good, is it? I know. This, this, I mean, they, how are they going to find... This, this is the only thing. This is mm. great. I mean, you need to find these people. You need to, but it's not like the laser has a... You know, the, the lasers are illegal mm. enough anyway. I mean, I won't lie. I've got one at home because I taunt with, the cat. We have it. one here, exactly, yeah, absolutely. For the but I certainly yeah. wouldn't be stupid enough to point it out of the window at a low-flying aeroplane. I mean... Mm. I, I mean... I, it does does make you worry about the mental health I know. Of, of some people. For, for for five seconds fun, you could uh, seriously, um, you know, Danger cause a lot of... Danger, 230 lives. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just reading in a story here, Matt, from last year. Uh, I mean, this this was last year, uh, just just over a year ago, mm. that uh, a chap in California in uh, in, the, in the USA um, got a 14-year prison sentence Gosh. Um, for pointing a laser at a police helicopter. So if you do catch him, great. Mm. I think uh, so, I think the um, the general thing now on the internet, or the stories that you mm. read and stuff, is that the sentences are becoming a lot longer for people who are caught doing this. Mm. By way so, of deterrent, I think probably. Yeah, it's good. I think yeah. it's good. I think it's a damn good idea. Mm. You know, if you're caught doing something as silly as shining lasers yeah. at aircraft, then uh, you deserve, you know, to be punished. Indeed, indeed. So. Uh, moving straight on, in fact, actually, to equally stupid people. Yes, we <laughs> have got a story here on the Get West London site, and it's rega- uh, regarding a, a plane which had a near-miss uh, with a drone, and this happened uh, at our busiest airport here in the UK, he- London Heathrow mm-hmm. Airport. So a passenger plane was on its final approach to Heathrow Airport when it almost collided with a controllable drone. Uh, or UAV. Mm. Um, urgent safety warnings have been issued after a number of cases of aircraft nearly hitting unmanned drones in Heathrow. One such case in 2014 was classed as the most serious category where a risk of collision was high. On July the 22nd, 2014, a plane making its way into land at Heathrow had a near miss uh, when, it, when it almost collided with a controllable drone. The Airbus A320 was on its final approach into Heathrow when the pilot spotted a small black object fly over the aircraft's wing around 20 feet away. Thankfully, the plane landed safely and air traffic control was informed. The incident happened at 700 feet above ground level and efforts to trace the drone operator were not successful. The near-miss was classed as a Category A, the most serious classification where a risk of collision was high. A Heathrow spokesman told Get West London unauthorised use of unmanned aerial vehicles, UAVs, in proximity to an airfield is both irresponsible and illegal. Heathrow's top priority is the safety of our passengers and staff. The CAA, or the Civil Aviation Authority, recently published revised guidelines on the use of UAVs and we will continue to work with them and other partners to ensure that any violation of airspace rules is fully prosecuted. 
There have been many incidents involving aircraft and UAVs in recent years. On the March the 15th uh, this year at Heathrow, an Airbus A320 pilot spotted a black object in the sky whilst at 1,800 feet. The drone passed over the passenger plane by around 50 feet. The CAA has launched a new drone awareness initiative in order to uh, target the increasing number of recreational drone users in the UK. Director of Policy Tim Johnson said, We want to embrace uh, and enable the unit of innovation that arises from the development of drone technology. But we must ensure that this is done safely with all airspace users in mind. It's imperative that people observe the rules when operating a drone. Drone users must understand that when taken to the skies, they are entering one of the busiest areas of airspace in the world. A complex system that brings together all manner of aircraft, including passenger airplanes, military jets, helicopters, gliders, light aircraft, and now drones. Mm. When doing so, they must be aware of the rules and regulations for flying drones that are designed to keep all users safe. Now, you took a photograph, which I think you actually sent I did. to Pip, didn't you? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and But, I mean, I read it and sort of laughed, and I thought, how sad is this? Bearing in mind, we were then, I, th- I think we spotted it actually as we were coming out of React, weren't, didn't we? Yeah. And yeah. there was this big poster saying that, you know, do not take drones into and do not fly drones around the, the, the airfield. And you mm. just think, do people really need, are, there, are people that stupid that they need that reminder not to fly <laughs> a drone near aircraft doing a display i just can't i but, just can't but people comprehend. probably might do well yeah, yeah. i mean clearly they've, they've obviously had an incident mm. haven't they uh, maybe not necessarily at react but somebody somewhere has certainly had an issue it's just i don't know i don't know i do worry about as i said the mental health of some people mm. uh, as i say and i don't have time for that I have enough mental health issues myself. I don't. I don't. I do not need to be worrying about the wider general. Yes, trust me. I found out. I found out about Matt's uh, mental health issues on the way back in the uh, van um, from Riyadh, travelling home on Sunday. And uh, on the way back, we wanted to have something to eat, and Matt was adamant he knew about this particular restaurant. Uh, yes. that was on our yes. route home. Yes, I was. <laughs> and um, he was sure that it was uh, halfway home. Yes. And uh, as it, it turns out, it was literally very on the doorstep to, yes. to where we live. <laughs> That's not fair. It was It was still about <laughs> 10 miles re-at side of Norwich. That's not and fair. I, and I think that uh, every single... Matt was Matt was adamant that it was off a roundabout. <laughs> yeah. It was off a roundabout. It was definitely which it off a was, roundabout. <laughs> which it was, but after we'd passed the, well, the seventh or eighth 17th, roundabout... Yes. Uh, with with no restaurant on, um, I was kind of I, well. I was trying to concerned start, from yeah. I was considering eating my steering wheel. And I was that hungry. Well, what can but, I say? to be fair, it was a very nice meal <laughs> when we got there. <laughs> we did enjoy. We did enjoy we did the indeed, meal. Yes. Good yeah. coffee. Good coffee. Mm. Anyway, uh, back on the matter. Back on the hand. Uh, Flight Global is the website this time, and the headline: Boeing cements Japanese participation in the triple seven X. Now we've actually got a story. Uh, not a story, sorry. We've got a we've got an interview to play, haven't we? Very shortly, that'll give you a clue um, that um, that involves this particularly this particular air force. But uh, anyway, uh, Boeing has. 
form, has formalized uh, agreements with a consortium of five Japanese suppliers to produce large parts for the seven the triple seven X program. Yee. The latest agreements formalizes a memorandum signed in June last year between Boeing Japan Aircraft Development Corporation and Japan Aircraft Industries. The latter re- representing Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, Fuji uh, Heavy Industries, uh, Kawasaki Heavy Heavy Industries. Um, Shin Maiwa, Shin Maiwa Industries and Nippi Corporation. Uh, under the deal, the five Jap- Japanese companies will be responsible for producing around 21% of the 777-8X and Dash 9X components, including center wing sections, uh, uh, pressure bulkheads, main landing gear, welds, uh, doors, wing components and wing body fairings. Uh, all five Japanese companies are already major Boeing suppliers and have a major work share on the in-production 777 series. The signing of this contract is an important milestone for GADC and JAI, said uh, Shingaru uh, Murama, apologies if that's not pronounced correctly, uh, JADC chairman and KHI president. The JAI companies are investing in new facilities and introducing robotic and other automated systems to ensure they deliver high quality products on time every time. Uh, This is a measure of their commitment to the success of the 777X. To support the 777X contract, FHI is building a new assembly facility at its uh, Honda plant for the production of center wing sections. The investment is part of a wider um, 10 billion yen, that's around about 80.6 million dollars uh, capital investment program to produce the 777X components. Separate to the GAI, the JAI agreement in March, Boeing has also selected Japanese company uh, NAB Tesco to uh, supply actuators for the aircraft. The 777X has firm orders for 306 aircraft from six customers and is set to enter production in 2017. First deliveries are targeted for 2020. So the 777X then, um, they're going to make a Dash 9 or a Dash 8 and a Dash 9 version of this. Mm. Um, The Dash 8 is going to hold 350 people. And the Dash 9 is going to hold 406. Gosh. It's going to be huge. Mm, it is. Um, the 777X um, is going to be powered by the General Electric mm. GE9X engines. Mm. And uh, so far, it's had uh, firm orders for 306 aircraft right. for the two types. Um, the popular one being the, nine, the Dash 9, the, la- the larger one, with mm. uh, 243 um, firm orders for that. Uh, Lufthansa, Etihad, Cathay Pacific, Emirates, mm-hmm. uh, Qatar, Al Nippon Airways, and some unidentified customers as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but Emirates, a huge order there. Thirty. Uh, actually, Emirates have ordered thirty-five Dash eights and one hundred and fifteen Dash nines, which is a huge order from uh, from the United so, Arab well, Emirates. I, I think it's safe to say the triple seven X is is here to stay. For it's right. It's going to be a very yeah. popular aircraft yeah. when that's um, when that's brought onto mm. into service. It definitely, comes in yeah. kind of like twenty twenty. Yeah. So we do have a well, we don't have a top ten, no, no. but we've got a we've got a twelve things you should never do on airplanes. Right. Okay. This is this is an MSN story. Yes. 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 Okay. I look forward to hearing all about that far away. 
So the so you were sorry. Yes, I see what you were trying to do now. Uh, <laughs> you are, you're sound asleep. Yeah, bless me, mind, still that asleep. Help! I can't. Get, there we go. Mouth. Sorry, <laughs> this is all going so well. You can tell we're back in the studio. I know. Lost, don't we? You already know what not to do on a plane if you don't want to be a giant jerk. Exhibit A: Man watching iPad movie without headphones. Exhibit <laughs> B: Woman eating pungent tuna wrap. Yeah. But best practices can be less obvious. For considerate humans who just want to make it from point A to point B safely. If you're if you're one of those people, avoid these behaviours next time you fly. So at number twelve. Number twelve. Holding in until you get there. So <laughs> So unless you regularly relieve yourself in some hole in the woods, using the plain potty or plain toilet Indeed. probably wouldn't uh, won't be uh, the highlight of your trip. But if you feel the urge to pee while you're in the air, just suck it up and use the bathroom. Otherwise, your urine will hang around in the bladder, where it can trigger an infection and make a uh, make vacationing uh, vacationing a pain. I'm not entirely sure what that has to do with anyone else. I know. It's not exactly inconveniencing your other passengers other than getting up and getting in the way. It's painful as well. Well, it is. So, uh, number 11. Number 11, walking around bare feet. Oh, I've seen really? this before. Do people do that? Yeah, oh yeah, definitely <laughs> on long haul. Uh, sure, it's nice to make yourself feel right at home in flight, particularly when you're in the air for hours or you fly overnight. However, former flight attendants say the floor can be positively filthy. Indeed, yeah. And anyone with eyeballs can confirm that Lurking trash and food debris should be a reason enough to keep your shoes on, or at least slip them on for a bathroom run. Indeed, yes. Uh, number 10. <laughs> Fussing with your seatbelt. The Today Show investigators also found that seatbelts were pretty icky too. They were covered with potentially harmful bacteria. Oh, good. While strapping in is obviously your only option, and you should definitely do it, avoid touching the strap after you fasten it, and put your hand sanitizer to use after buckling in. Do you really carry a hand sanitizer with you, though? Gemma does. Does she? My wife, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, anyway, number nine. Number nine, eating food after it falls on your tray table. When, to, when the Today Show's investigative team swabbed random surfaces for germs during three different cross-country plane trips on separate airlines, guess where they found the highest levels of harmful bacteria mm. across the board? On plane tray tables. Yeah. Flight attendants blame those passengers that use their tray tables as for, for changing babies' nappies. No. And you know better than to eat off one of those. <laughs> While grand crews are supposed to wipe down trays between flights, you never really know how well they get in, uh, get in there. Mm. Give the surface a once over yourself using an antibacterial wipe or hand sanitizer and a napkin. Skip this step and you're better off sacrificing the peanut that graced your tray. <laughs> no. The really sad thing is, is I have actually done that. You're not going to do that anymore. No, I'm not. No, you're quite right. Number seven. Number eight. Oh. I missed number eight there. Oh, you moved it, sorry. Number eight. <laughs> Binging on plain food. You can tell I've had a day off, can't oh, you? I'm, 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 I've been I'm, off today. I'm, I know. <laughs> of course, you should eat when you're hungry, whether you're on a plane or elsewhere, but polish it all. Uh, polish, polish off all the in-flight food just because you're bored and you'll enjoy it less than you would do on the ground. Dry cabin air and low air pressure can reduce your ability to perceive salty and sweet tastes by 15 to 30%. 
We keeping you up, Matt? Yes. Which can Sorry. make food taste worse <laughs> when you eat in the air, according to a German study. You are picking on me. That's not I fair. Know. <laughs> all the news, uh, all the noise from the airplane engine doesn't help either, according to a Cornell University study that confirms the obvious obvious uh, environmental distractions that can affect your sense of taste. Some airlines compensate for the ambiance by serving saltier food, so you can easily end up overdoing it on sodium. Oh dear. And anyway, and uh, second time, lucky. Number seven, boozing it up. Oh, there we go. Yes. While alcohol, apart from Ryanair flights, might uh, initially help you to fall asleep on a flight, it can ultimately mess with your sleep quality, dehydrate you, and trigger a lingering hangover that makes you irritable and lethargic. <laughs> Lay off the booze until you're back on the ground to arrive on your A-game. On your A-game. Oh, this is such an American I term. Your A-game. <laughs> uh, number six. Number six, drinking anything with bubbles. Changes in air pressure can cause gas in the body to expand as much as 25%. According to an Aerospace Medical Association report, because bubbly beverages do the same thing, they can exasperate these uncomfortable effects. Skip them to feel less bloated when you land. Number five. Number five, ordering tea or coffee. Never mind the fact that in-flight coffee is an insult to the beverage. That's not Coffees fair. and teas are made from plain tap water that could contain coliform bacteria found in 12% of commercial airplanes, <laughs> according to a 2012 <laughs> Environmental Protection Agency report. As long as your immune system is up to the stuff, uh, uh, the, the stuff won't necessarily make you sick, but because chlor- uh, coliform comes from feces, where <laughs> harmful bacteria also lurk, water that contains it is more likely to harbor scarier stuff like E. coli, which can really mess with your system. So don't risk it. Opt for bottled water instead and hold off the ice as it's made with plain tap water. Just ask an attendant. That's really not fair. I'm it's sorry. It's quite scary. I'm never going to eat on a plane that, ever that's again. That's not a very fair... I, as much as it pains me to say it, one of the nicest coffees I've had in a really long time was on an Ryanair. I like, well, I'm see, you sorry do love Ryanair, really. Number four. Number four, declining a beverage. Cabin air is notoriously dry because your body uh, loses moisture every time you exhale. Simply breathing at high altitudes can dehydrate you. So when the flight attendant rolls up, place an order and request refills on the regular. Number three. Number three, dozing off when it's daytime at your final destination. Because this will make it harder to adjust to the time zone you're traveling to. So it's a surefire way to mess yourself over. Instead, change your watch to reflect the time zone of wherever you is you're going, and as soon as you board the plane, uh, recommends the National Sleep Foundation. Then adjust your activities accordingly. If your watch says it's bedtime, go to bed and shut your eyes. Otherwise, open up and face the day, even if it's dark outside. Well, there we are, number two. Uh, number two, sitting from takeoff to landing. Low air pressure in the cabin can slow your circulation and set uh, you up for blood clots, particularly in the legs. Mm. Sitting around doesn't help, especially if you're on birth control pills, because some can increase your risk of developing dangerous clots, even without uh, air travel. To reduce the risk of developing clots, which could pose major health issues if they travel to your lungs, brain or heart, the CDC suggests getting up and moving around as often as possible. Of course, that's easier said than done for lazies and people sitting in window or middle seats. It's all the more reason to choose an aisle seat when you can, regardless of where you're seated. You can protect yourself by performing these exercises every so often. Um, There aren't hard and fast 
guidelines on how to frequent, uh, frequently you should do them. Uh, so raise your heels uh, while your toes are on the floor. Raise your toes while your heels are on the floor and clench and release your leg muscles. Repeat each move a handful of times before moving on to the next and repeat uh, the entire series periodically throughout your flight. And if you zonk out on a red eye, just try to shift positions as often as possible and move your legs anytime you're awake enough to think of it. Some experts recommend against taking sleeping pills uh, lest they render you even more immobile. <laughs> Dear. And finally, number one. Sleeping through takeoff or landing. Naughty, naughty. What? When the plane ascends or descends, the air pressure around your around you changes faster than the air inside your ears. If ever you've flown before, you'll know this can be super uncomfortable, but only temporarily. To equalize the pressure, all you need to do is chew gum, inhale, then exhale gently as you hold your mouth or nose shut. Suck on a sweet or yawn, according to Medicine Plus. In other words, you're better off awake. Accidentally sleep through the pressure change, and this condition could only get more uncomfortable, potentially in, uh, in Insist, instigating. instigating, thank you, dizziness, uh, an ear infection or slight hearing loss or eardrum damage or nosebleeds and severe hearing loss in the worst of cases. I'm, I must be honest, I have had a nosebleed on, on the plane before. I am I am a little prone. Were you asleep? To... No, 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 I was awake. Okay. I was awake and it was just, we got, we'd taken off, we'd, we'd been taken off for about a minute, I think something like that, and then it was just like, oh, funny, that that feels funny. Oh, oh, ah. <laughs> I I I can't. I, I, no, no, I have. no. I've, I can't find it hard to sleep on a plane. I'm just too excited about stuff. <laughs> you know me. Oh no. So that's, on that bombshell. Uh, on that bombshell, <laughs> uh, we have got uh, some military news coming up yeah. next, mm-hmm. and then we've got our, our interviews. F- our first set of from React interviews. React. So we, uh, me and Matt, are going to have uh, a quick brew, mm. quick cup of tea. Indeed. And uh, we are going to... The good lady must be home. She'll be, yes, yes, the wife will be home soon. So we're going to come back to you after this. We, opted, we, we actually opted for coffee this time. We did. Yeah, we op- yes. opted for coffee. Caffeine levels. Caffeine, yes, mm. yes, yes. Captain Jeff loves his coffee. Does he? Mm. Mm. And um, last night, or actually I should say the early hours of this morning, I managed to catch uh, one of Jeff's live oh, shows, oh, right, um, yeah. episode 177, I think right. it was, of ABG, and uh, watching it on Google, mm. which is really great with uh, with Dr. Steph as well, mm-hmm. uh, as co-host. And it was, yeah, it was Great watching the sh- watching mm. uh, yeah watching those guys do the show live. So wow. uh, hello to you, Captain Jeff and uh, Doctor Steph, and not forgetting as well Miami Rick as well. Cool. So uh, we have got uh, some military news to go. Mm. So uh, we're going to push things on. So if you're ready, Matt, mm, I am. I'm going to stop picking the crisps. <laughs> He's been eating now. crisps. Yeah. <laughs> right, let's go. <laughs> So 
So on the Royal Air Force's site then, the first story, and uh, it is on, oh sorry, on Flight Global, sorry. Oh, we skipped to the end there, blimey. Yes. It's uh, Flight Global, and the headline, NASA and uh, the USAF study effect of volcanic ash on C-17 mm. engines. Something that has affected one of our good friends um, over the his, last few yes, with uh, his honeymoon, days. Poor swine. Yeah, yeah. Grant McCarran from the Plain uh, Plain Crazy Down Under podcast mm. has had uh, slight issues uh, getting. He did to, eventually get away, didn't he? He got. But, uh, to, uh, he went to Fiji mm. in the end. Yeah, on holiday. And uh, but yeah, he was affected by volcanic ash. Yes. Poor man. It must have been a bit stressful not knowing actually where he was going on honeymoon. Because yeah. where he had got planned, they couldn't get to, and so because they were quite late leaving in the end. Yeah, they, they were. Because yeah. he, he ended up going back to work for a couple of days yeah. before. <laughs> yeah. So hello to to uh, to Grant and Kit. Ah, the I hope you, that is. Yes. Yeah, I hope you had a good uh, honeymoon. Honeymoon, mm-hmm. you guys, and uh, all the best uh, from uh, me we'll and Matt. To, we'll have to have him on on the next live one. Yeah, we'll get we'll get uh, Grant on the show. Mm-hmm. So uh, researchers at Edwards Air Force Base in California have uh, sprayed Boeing C-17 Globemaster engines with volcanic ash to trial new health monitoring and diagnostic technologies that could improve aircraft safety and fault detection. The NASA Vehicle uh, Integrated Propulsion Research, VIPR, project in partnership with the U.S. Air Force Research Laboratory and Federal Aviation Administration, started a series of tests early this month using a government C-17 aircraft and two Pratt & Whitney F-117 high-bypass military turbofan engines. These latest tests build on similar diagnostics and engine health monitoring tests in December 2011 and July 2013. The team is using four primary sensors to gather data and measure engine changes during the volcanic ash ingestion. These sensors include a vibration sensor on the engine inlet that was originally designed for the space shuttle's main engine, uh, a thin film fiber optic temperature sensor in the compressor section, a microwave sensor to measure the clearance between the blade tip and the wall of the turbine, and emissions sensor on the exhaust. John Leakey, NASA uh, Glenn Research Center's VIPR principal investigator, says the sensors allow the program team to monitor how the ash is affecting the engine in real time and help develop diagnostic systems to aid civil and military aircraft in volcanic ash encounters and to develop the prognosis tools to predict how certain levels of debris will impact performance. The Air Force say there are approximately 1,500 active volcanoes around the globe. Blimey, I didn't know that. Mm. And in the past 15 years, more than 80 commercial aircraft have encountered volcanic ash unexpectedly, with seven of those incidents causing a loss of engine power that might have caused a fatal crash. AFRL's VIPR principal investigator Jack Hoying said the team is using Mazma Ash which is mined from an old uh, dry riverbed in the state of Oregon. He says the trials will examine a light level of ash ingestion that uh, is not visible uh, and a visible medium density plume. The ash is very abrasive and highly angular, Horning says. The test will definitely help us take uh, the next step in understanding if we can fly close to these plumes. The primary objectives are to introduce new sensors that will improve flight safety and reduce maintenance costs through the detection of potential faults, and to evaluate the latest engine diagnostic technologies. 
The major industry partners are Boeing, Pratt & Whitney, General Electric and Rolls-Royce. And on the site here, there's um, there's some pictures there. There's one, mm. a picture of the uh, cut through of the engine. There's also uh, a picture of the uh, the ash they used so, yeah, to, to fly into yeah. the, the engines. But it's good. We covered a story, if you remember, early on. I think it was earlier on this year, Matt. Or was it last year with the uh, EasyJet doing those trials? Um, to, to is do that when ash we had detection. the the, the Icelandic mm. um, ash? Yeah, that was a couple of years ago. Wasn't yeah, it? Mm. Uh, but I think EasyJet were doing some trials with um, with one of the engine manufacturers to. Uh, well, I think that's that's half these. the trouble, isn't it? Every time you do get these these ash clouds, we we, we just don't know enough information about how about, they affect uh, mm. how they affect that the. Uh, I mean, obviously, you're aware that you know. Of, it's not airflows and things are going to be mm. interrupted, but it's like it's just identifying how much of a of an issue it's going to cause that very large engine, isn't it? Mm. It's, it's a, it, I mean, it can't be good if you think because essentially even even fine particles of ash are going to be rock hard. Mm. They mm. they they solidify and they sort of stick. Mm. They look a bit like glue mm. to the fan blades, well, especially with all the moisture that, mm. that, that, that that's being pushed through the engine. Yeah. Well, and on to the next story. This is Flight Global again, and it's a story uh, from Riyadh. And it's Air Tanker offers Surge Fleet Voyager to military users. We saw this aircraft. Now, in fact, I think, actually, we have the interview in this particular yeah. section. Yeah, oh, do we? Good, yes, good. so that's good news. Uh, Air Tanker is offering its latest Airbus A330 Voyager, acquired as part of the UK's future strategic tanker aircraft program, to enable military operators to move personnel or freight rather than put the wide body into commercial use. The 12th of an eventual 14 Voyagers to be delivered was on static display at the Royal International Air Tattoo at the Royal Air Force Base in Fairford in Gloucestershire from the 17th of the 19th of July. We know we were there. Uh, The KC-2 model aircraft ZZ341 is part of a so-called surge fleet to be made available to the UK if required beyond uh, a core inventory of eight flown by the RAF and a ninth that is retained on the civil aircraft uh, register and flown by air tanker crews. We believe there's a value for our UK customers in making this aircraft available to them, says Air Tanker Chief Executive Phil Blundell. Blundell, sorry. The, uh, it would be cheaper to use uh, the Voyager than going to the chartered sector. The company is discussing the proposal with the Ministry of Defence, but for now it will employ uh, the ZZ341 to support its existing tasking. In the longer term, Air Tanker hopes to provide excess, excess capability to support a European Defence Agency initiative to acquire a pooled fleet of A330 tanker stroke transporters for the Netherlands, Norway and Poland. This could potentially take the form of multinational pilots training on the Voyager. We can get them very familiar with the platform, says Blundell, uh, who notes that discussions with the EDA have had the support of the RAF and Airbus Defence and Space. Meanwhile, an A330-20, operated by Tom's Cook Airlines since the 1st of May under a lease agreement with Air Tanker, has been returned to the latter's facilities at Bryce Norton for, ad- for adaptation to the carrier's seating configuration. Since entering commercial service, the originally tanker-rolled Voyager has been flown from the UK with Air Tanker's 291-seat single-class layout as the Air Airlines Aero uh, Acro supplied replacements were not available in time for its introduction. Uh, Blundell says aircraft G, uh, G-VYGK, so, what is that? So it's Golf... Victor, Victor Yankee, Yankee Golf, Golf Kilo. Kilo 
is now having its interior updated, with the work expected to take around three weeks to complete. It will then be returned to Thomas Cook with 323 economy class seats, all with in-flight entertainment screens. Do they keep them for the military? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> the first aircraft from the surge fleet had already had its military systems removed prior to entering commercial use. Air Tanker says that it has flown more than 23,700 passengers before being returned for completion of its interior modification. It is proving that we can take the Voyager aircraft back to a civilian configuration and not affect performance, Blundell says. If there's no interest, it would be uh, available for the next civilian summer season, he adds. The programme's remaining two aircraft are scheduled for arrival in January and September 2016, Air Tanker has said. Meanwhile, the Voyager has recently received final operational clearance to provide in-flight refuelling to the RAF's Boeing E-3D Sentry Airborne Warning and Control System aircraft. The type is also due to conduct its first trials from around February next year with a Lockheed Martin F-35B operating from NAS Pattinson in River uh, from NAS in Maryfield. So Air Tanker, Matt, mm. and if you go to... It's not a company I've heard of before. No, it, they've, I've just looked at their website while they've been doing a story, mm. actually, airtanker.co.uk, uh, mm. um, provide all the um, the mili- you know, the transports and the refueling stuff um, with, with the RAF. Mm. And they've got quite a nice website if you go to uh, airtanker.co.uk, and uh, they've got some great info on there on the particular roles that the um, the Air, you know the Airbus 330... Uh, MRTT uh, does because it obviously we know it does the refueling thing we've seen that and the transport um, also uh, it does uh, a lot of uh, medical stuff as well it can be uh, converted to uh, to do medical stuff um, transport um, troops and stuff that uh, are injured which is uh, pretty cool uh, it could be uh, transfer it can be converted to uh, have 40 uh, separate beds to uh, look after patients uh, that are injured right. um, and also has uh, the ability to be have uh, three critical care um, uh, parts of the aircraft for obviously for, for major stuff on uh, right. on the aircraft. But yeah, if you go on to uh, Air Tanker's website, you'll see there's loads of info on there uh, about, uh, about the aircraft and mm. about the uh, role that Air Tanker plays with the uh, Royal Air Force. Gosh, yeah. Next story then, mm. and uh, the RAF to take early delivery of the UK's second rivet joint uh, aircraft. The Royal Air Force's ability to conduct signals intelligence missions will receive a boost in September when its second RC-135W rivet joint airseeker aircraft will be delivered. The first air seeker is currently employed on operations alongside a variety of other air RAF uh, units in the fight against uh, IS, uh, ISIL in the skies over Iraq and Syria. The Ministry of Defence says the Boeing 707, sorry, that's me fiddling around with the cable there. The Boeing 707 base surveillance asset provides uh, support to combat identification and targeting operations, it adds. The second aircraft will arrive. With uh, 51 Squadron based at RAF Waddington in Lincolnshire, seven months earlier than previously scheduled, the MOD confirms. The new aircraft uh, is expected to be deployable in a matter of weeks after delivery, it adds. 
The UK's Operation Shader activity against Islamic State uh, militants also currently involves Raytheon Systems Sentinel R1 ground surveillance aircraft. General Atomics uh, Aeronautical Systems Reaper remotely piloted air systems and Panavia Tornado GR4s carrying UTC Aerospace Systems Raptor reconnaissance pods. The first of uh, three UK RC-135Ws entered operational use last year, with the total uh, total procurement valued at uh, £650 million, or $1 billion. So the uh, the rivet uh, mat uh, mm. is uh, very um, easy to sort of spot. It, it looks very similar to the uh, the old seven hundred seven, the Boeing seven hundred seven, mm. uh, with uh, uh, different engines. Got the slightly more powerful uh, uh, engines on that. I think the CFM on that, mm. and it's also got that large nose, uh, extra large nose cone uh, with all the surveillance radar and stuff all built into that right. as well. Yeah. Because because um, it, it's it's a sort of, it's literally a much longer nose cone, isn't it? So as where beforehand it would things. just sort of just mm. sort of round off almost under the window. It's, it it has got uh, has that, and it's unusual to see newish aircraft with um with four engines as well. Or is that just because of the weight? No, wait, that's uh, that's how they that seven the original seven oh seven had right. four engines. Okay, um, many years ago, an older aircraft, mm. but uh, this is obviously based on that. And, mm. uh, but they've been upgraded. The engines are upgraded on this. They're a lot more powerful than the uh, the old um, Pratt and Whitney's that mm. used to power the seven hundred seven yeah. many years ago. Gosh. But no, that's good news for uh, the Royal Air Force. Certainly more is. more new aircraft. Yeah, definitely the way forward. Uh, this is uh, Flight Global again, and the headline is Indian Su thirty start joint exercise with RAF Typhoons uh, for uh, Sukhoi. Is it Su thirty MKI fighters? Uh, fighters from the Indian Air Force 2's squadron have begun their involvement in a UK-based exercise also involving the Royal Air Force Eurofighter Typhoons. Um, the manoeuvres uh, commenced on the 21st of July from RAF Coningsby in Lincolnshire uh, following the arrival of the Indian aircraft four days earlier. The exercise is intended to enhance mutual operational mutual operational understanding between the two air forces, the former says. Uh, India's aircraft, which originally operate, uh, ordin- uh, sorry, India's aircraft, which or- or ordinarily operate from its uh, airbase uh, uh, at home, were accompanied to the UK by single examples of its Boeing C-17 and Lockheed Martin C-130J transports, and by um, the now I'm not sure how to say this, the illusion, uh, il- illusion. Uh, was it eleven seventy eight? It's the IL seventy eight. Yeah, right. you see, I it's a hard. So it's a Russian one. You see, it it's is. Hard yes, to get yes, yeah. Anyway, yeah. The, uh, a very large tanker, mm. the latter of which will remain at RAF Bryce Norton in Oxfordshire during their stay. A previous exercise in two thousand and seven saw India send six of its Su thirty MKIs to RAF Waddington in Lincolnshire, also to work with the RAF's Typhoons. Another another one of these joint exercises now. Yeah, yeah. Um, with our, with, you know, with our guys working with a with a com- with a completely different co- uh, country altogether. Not even a European country. No, you know, we're we're no, uh, working with the Indians here, which is great. I think it's it's right. good to all get on together. Certainly, I think it's, definitely. It's definitely the way forward. So next story then. Uh, the uh, this is a couple. Of, this is aircraft that we saw at Riyadh this mm. weekend. The A10, mm. the uh, tank busters. Yes. Um, I, I was pointing those out to Matt. Yes. 
And, uh, and I was going, ooh, pity. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> they, are, they are a rather acquired taste looking aircraft, but yeah. fantastic. One of the um, one of the workhorses of the uh, USAF. So the um, US Air Force has closed the lid on discussions about shipping the A-10 Warthog to allies, telling Flight Global it will not sell the close uh, in-attack aircraft to anyone. Boeing triggered speculation about whether the U.S. government would consider selling the aircraft it wants to retire when uh, when a company official told reporters there have been early discussions about international sales. It's something we would be interested in, but again, it depends on whether the Air Force goes with uh, retirements. Uh, Paul Sejas, chief engineer of Boeing programs, told reporters during a media uh, roundtable in May. In a 23rd of July statement, Air Force spokesman Melissa Milner said there are no anticipated sales of a, a Air 10, uh, A-10's aircraft to anyone. Asked to clarify the statement in a follow-up call, she said the Air Force has no intention at all of putting the A-10s up for sale. It's a shame, I wouldn't mind buying one of those myself. <laughs> the uh, company says it's the closest thing to a prime contract uh, for the aircraft, which was uh, designed and built by Fairchild Republic in the 1970s. Boeing is most of the way through a multi-billion dollar re-winging program that will extend the life of the aircraft and says it would be cheaper for the Air Force to complete the upgrades than break that contract at this point. Despite being uh, described by Air Combat Command Chief General Hawk Carlisle as the best close air support aircraft ever, the Air Force has been on a campaign to retire the A-10 fleet as a cost-cutting measure since proposing the move in its fiscal year 2015 budget submission. The service proposed retiring the fleet again in its 2016 submission, saying it doesn't have the funds to keep the aging aircraft going and needs to free up uh, maintainers to support the Lockheed Barton F-35 Joint Strike Fighter rollout. There are currently 140 retired warthogs in the care of the 309th Aerospace Maintenance and Regeneration Group at Davis Monthan Air Force Base in Arizona. Of those, 21 are in Type 1000 storage, the Air Force says. So a little file picture there, Matt, of the uh, A-10 Warthog uh, firing missile. The yeah, they're, they're, they're almost bigger than the plane. Now, I can always remember these as, as a child at being at Mildenhall Air Show mm. that we used to have here in the UK many years ago. And hearing, I mean, these were noisy aircraft, you know, but mm. they looked menacing. And some of the some of the aircraft used to have the uh, shark teeth painted on the nose on the God. side, you know, how yeah. they used to uh, yeah. uh, you know, put the designs on these aircraft. But um, <laughs> but there you go. So mm. the one last story. Um, very sad story. Yes, it is a very sad story indeed. And uh, you've got this one, Matt. I have indeed, yes. This is on the Royal Air Force uh, website. And the headline is Vulcan's Farewell to Riyadh. Um, the Royal International Air Tattoo bid farewell to the Vulcan XH558 as it roared above the world's largest military air show this weekend in its final display season. Tens of thousands of cameras pointed skywards as the Cold War Delta-winged bomber uh, saluted the Riyadh crowd one last time, escorted by the Red Arrows. And it has, it has to be said, that is one of the greatest things I think I've ever seen, isn't it? 
It was fantastic it to was. see that in formation with the uh, oh, red with arrows. The as well. It was. It was. It was. It was truly great. Um, an emotional farewell to the Vulcan at React Day. I saw her return and her goodbye. This was on Twitter. Uh, the sellout air show at uh, RAF Fairfield attracted up to 150,000 spectators over the three days who enjoyed almost perfect weather. Uh, more than 2,000 volunteers ensured the whole event ran safely and smoothly, as well as demonstrating the awesome capability of the RAF um, operational aircraft. The show also paid tribute to the few who secured the skies in the 1940s. The distinctive hum of the Merlin engines filled the air as wave after wave of spitfires and hurricanes accompanied by a, a uh, is it Bouchon? Bouchon. Bouchon, uh, marked as a German um, ME-109, wowed the crowd in paying tribute to the airmen who fought in the Battle of Britain 75 years ago. Now, you got some absolutely cracking photos, didn't you? Yeah, I put those on our Facebook page. All the fo- well, yeah. Some of the photos I took at uh, mm. Riyadh are on our Facebook page. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, was, it was just fantastic to see that aircraft mm. um, flying at uh, Riyadh for the last time this year. Yeah. And obviously seeing, you know, seeing a flying formation with the reds you know just added that um you know that just just that extra jazz at the end you know Absolutely. Uh, but no it's a sad it's a sad year obviously mm. she's she has got some more air shows to do um this year before she is finally retired um but uh if you do get a chance to go to one of the other air shows she's going to this year you know please do um mm. go and see uh you know see the last uh mm. Flying uh, Vulcan XH558. Yeah. If you get a chance, you mustn't miss it because it, it, really, it really is the end, ladies mm. and gents. And she is, as the namesake says on her on her fuselage where she's painted, she is the spirit of Great Britain. Mm. Definitely. Mm. So that's the uh, last military story we have for this week. And it seems a very fitting place, obviously, to return to Riyadh as we put out the first of several little sections. No pip at the moment, obviously. We've got some uh, of our own stuff to actually put out, which is very Yay. exciting, from Riyadh 2015. So um, I hope you enjoy. We've got three interviews. Yes, we have. Um, and uh, they are with, uh, I can't tell you, because <laughs> I've lost the page, but uh, three interviews um, uh, for you to look forward I think we've to. got the, the first one's the um, the captain of the P1, That's right. the, the Kawasaki P1, yeah. um, which was had its first uh, debut at, uh, far, at uh, Riyadh this year, yeah. um, the first time it's been in the UK as well. And uh, his English was... was you know, he did say he, he did say his English wasn't uh, brilliant, but he, uh, you know, he did. He, he, I think he understood us. Let, let's be honest; it was far better than than our Japanese. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Definitely better than our Japanese. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so we've got uh, three people to look forward to. As I say, first one, uh, and again, I'm not 100 percent sure how to uh, pronounce this, but it's uh, Commander Oswa. Osawa. Uh, yeah. Osawa, uh, and then uh, uh, then after that, it's pilot Jazz Or. Is it Jazz Or? Jazz yeah. Jazz yeah. And then uh, finally, uh, Lieutenant Richard Knight from the Royal Navy. Yeah, so we're going to bring you those uh, those interviews we've done at uh, React 2015, and we hope you enjoy them. Okay, then, so you join me, Flynn, for uh, my first uh, interview at the Royal International Air Tattoo at RAF Fairford in Gloucestershire. Um, I'm here with Pip. Pip is uh, next to me here. Hello, everyone. Good morning. 
And uh, I'm here next to the Japanese, uh, and this is designated the Kawasaki P1. And uh, with me is... Uh, I'm Commander Ozawa, uh, pilot of P1. Ah, oh, you're the pilot. Excellent. So how was, uh, how was your flight over uh, to, the, uh, to the show? So uh, it's take a long time from Japan, but uh, very smooth and uh, very easy to fly this aircraft. Okay, the, uh, so the aircraft then, uh, the engines on there, what, uh, what type of engines are those on there? So uh, we have uh, four uh, turbofan engines uh, made by uh, Japan uh, constructors, uh, Japan, Japanese makers. Okay, and the aircraft is a maritime surveillance aircraft, so you use for, for looking out for lost, uh, lost ships or uh, lost people at sea? Yeah, uh, we also uh, search and rescue mission, or, uh, some transport mission, or, uh, many things uh, we do. And does it have a, an anti-submarine uh, warfare role? Yeah, also uh, mainly mission is uh, anti-submarine warfare, but uh, we have a, a lot of missions uh, to do. So this is your first time in the UK, yeah. and uh, are you enjoying yourself? Yes, very enjoyed in, in participating to this Riyadh. Yeah, I'm uh, so excited. Is, your, is this your first uh, trip to the UK? Uh, yes, absolutely yes. <laughs> and you're enjoying the weather? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, today is uh, sunny, uh, not uh, British summer, <laughs> so uh, very uh, nice uh, weather. How long have you been flying yourself? How many years have you uh, been flying? Um? Uh, myself? Yes. It's uh, in this aircraft about uh, four and a half years, but uh, I joined the Japanese Navy at about uh, 25 years ago. So uh, I have uh, about uh, 6,000 hours flying hours. Wow. Wow. What, uh, how many different aircraft have you flown? Have you flown lots, lots smaller aircraft? or? Yeah, uh, smaller aircraft just... Uh, be- beginning the flight training and uh, we changed them more bigger, bigger, bigger and uh, uh, previous uh, aircraft is uh, I flew the P3C and uh, transition to P1 ah, So the P1, how does she fly? Does she, uh, is she a good, uh, good aircraft to handle? Yes, very easy to fly and uh, very high capability to conduct the missions very nice aircraft it's a very nice-looking aeroplane. Now, I must say, I noticed on the on the back behind the tail, there's a, a long boom type. Uh, uh, you know, something sticking. Uh, what is that? That is uh, magnetic detectors. Uh, uh, for yes, mm-hmm. uh, same as P3C has also. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. The German uh, PC3 as well has the same sort of thing. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Excellent. So you're here tomorrow as well for the show. Uh, I'm I'm not flying, but. Uh, our crew uh, will fly today and tomorrow, so please uh, expect that. <laughs> well, enjoy the rest of your show and enjoy the rest of your time in the UK. And uh, thank you very much for your time and uh, all the best for the future. Uh, yeah, you're welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. We're standing next to the Royal Air Force Voyager aircraft. And uh, with us here uh, is the pilot of the aircraft, Jace Orr from 101 Squadron. Uh, welcome to the Plane Talking UK podcast and the Plane Safety podcast. 
Hi, thank you very much. Good to be here. So uh, you guys, you flew in uh, this week? Yeah, the aircraft came in, I think, Thursday. Um, we had it open yesterday for the, the public, and uh, again today and Sunday, and then uh, I fly the aircraft out on uh, Monday afternoon. Oh. That's correct, yeah, just down the road, so a quick hop in and out. Uh, it's less than 10 minutes, that's for certain. Is that the shortest flight you've got in your logbook, or have you done shorter? Uh, one or two short ones, uh, mostly from here to Bryce or from uh, uh, Lynham to Bryson when that was open. Now, I know that those short flights are actually some of the more difficult flights uh, to manage. Uh, how do you find that? Do you agree with that, that the short flights are often very tricky? Um, yes, they are very tricky because they're very intense. Um, lots of checklists to get through, lots of communication with air traffic agencies. Um, and it's a lot of work for a, a five-minute flight or a ten-minute flight. What sort of uh, altitude did you manage to get up to for a ten-minute flight? Uh, it depends really on the weather. If it's a nice day, then we'll probably only go up to uh, 1,500 feet. If it's uh, a bit worse weather, then to fit in with air traffic, uh, particularly because of this time of year it's very busy, then we may go up to three or 4,000 feet. The airspace between here and Bryce is... Uh, uncontrolled airspace, isn't it? Is it Class G airspace? Uh, Bryce is Class D, I believe. It um, sort of extends out this way, um, and for the period of Riyadh, they, uh, they sort of t- Bryce takes control of the whole um, area in terms of an approach agency. Okay, so not, not too much of an issue with little Cessnas and things smashing on your windscreen? Not so much of an issue. They're still about. Some, some of them still don't talk to air traffic control, but um, big windows, big sky. Yeah, we do absolutely. have TCAS as well, so it all helps. Now, this is uh, obviously an Airbus A330, but uh, tell us what, uh, what sort of roles and uh, modifications has it got for Air Force service? Um, it is basically an A330 200 series aircraft. Um, the military um, have changed a little bit to, to help it do the aerofueling. It's obviously got pods on the wings um, and to help that it's got uh, extra fuel pumps. Um, we have camera systems that allow us to see 360 degrees um, so we've got the lookout from the cockpit and then behind the aircraft from wingtip to wingtip we, we can see from the cameras. A uh, few little bits, a uh, few extra computers to help manage the centre of gravity and the fuel. Um, and the, the biggest reason that you see if you actually here in the flight deck is that the forward galley has been removed and there's a whole mission operating console there um, to allow the mission systems operator to work the aerofueling equipment. Okay, but hopefully you still have the ability to make yourself a cup of tea mid-flight. Absolutely, and if we can help it at all then we'll have somebody to do that for us. Awesome, awesome. Now, um, for the training, for the initial type rating training for the 330, is that all done in-house in the Air Force, or do you go off to a training provider and do the full standard A330 type rating? Um, we now have uh, the Voyager Academy, which um, is based at Bryce. There's a simulator there, which is fully uh, type rated for a civilian um, license. Um, so now everybody that uh, joins Voyager will go through the civilian type rating course there. Okay. And how long have you been flying the uh, 330? Uh, just about two years now. Okay. And before that? Uh, before that, I was on an exchange program with the U.S. Air Force in uh, California, unfortunately, on the KC-10. And uh, deep down, I'm still a VC-10 pilot. VC-10. Well, that was a wonderful aircraft, wasn't it? I believe it still holds some sort of speed record, doesn't it? For the fastest Atlantic crossing or the fastest something or other? Uh, it's the fastest non-stop UK to Australia. Ah, there you go. It was a fast aeroplane, wasn't it? Shame that, uh, shame that never made it commercially. So the aircraft, the uh, the A330, how how different uh, or different is it to fly than the passenger? Or they don't both fly exactly the same? Uh, to all intents and purposes, it's the same aircraft. Um, it really doesn't handle any differently from the civilian aircraft that we operate in the simulator. Um, and to really, you wouldn't notice anything other than the noise um, because of the defensive aid suite. Um, some of the uh, bubbles you can see around the aircraft, particularly the ones in the cockpit, create a bit of extra noise, um, and that's really about the only difference. 
So your career in, in the uh, RAF, how did it all start for you? Was it uh, from flying light Cessnas like myself, or uh, did things start uh, straight in with the RAF? Um, almost straight in with the RAF. I've got documentary proof that I wanted to be a pilot since I was three years old, and uh, I was fortunate enough to, uh, to sort of gear my uh, choices in education around that. Um, so I went to university, and there I joined the University Air Squadron at uh, Wales, um, and that gave me the springboard to, to join once I completed my degree. Um, then I went on to uh, to train on the Bulldogs while they were still around. Um, started Bulldog. off down. Yay! I flew the Bulldog. <laughs> yeah, I've got uh, about 100 hours on the Bulldog. Um, I, I was lucky enough to go uh, and fly the Tucanos and the Hawks for a little while, uh, and then I ended up getting restreamed onto uh, to the VC-10. So you typewrited at all in any other any other aircraft in the Royal Air Force? No, not at the moment. Just a single type aircraft, uh, just the Voyager. So what's, what's the future f- uh, hold for yourself and what are you looking at? Um, well, I'm uh, just about to undertake my aerofueling instructor's course um, with the Voyager, so that uh, is me for the next few years. I'm hopefully teaching uh, new and old guys how to, uh, to do the refueling uh, the Voyager way. Um, and then who knows what the future holds. Uh, the Air Force changes so quickly that um, um, I'm quite happy at the moment. A lot of time away from home, though. Um, but uh, I've got time to think about things as my career develops. Now, as we were just discussing before we started recording, uh, something slightly unusual about this setup is on the on the void, or at least some of them, you have civilian pilots working alongside you, right? That's correct. Uh, there's a certain number of um, sponsored reserve pilots uh, that fly with us. In the main, they fly as civilian pilots on the A330 with their tanker, um, but every now and again, we'll uh, put them in military uniform and, and they'll fly side by side, exactly the same as one of us. Okay, but they're all ex ex Air Force pilots, are they reservist pilots? Not at all. There are a lot of them that are purely commercial pilots uh, that just expressed an interest to come and fly for air tanker and, uh, and the sponsored reserve uh, was something that they were very much interested in. Oh, right, and how, how have they and you found the integration of civilian into, into military way of thinking? I think they find it quite, a, quite interesting. Um, air tanker themselves at the moment have not that much variety in the flying they do. They do a lot of South Atlantic uh, runs to the Falkland Islands. So actually coming to do some air refueling is a little bit of spice in their life. But actually they and us get on very, very well. Um, a lot of them we do know from a former military life, and we do socialise together. And, uh, it's, it's but if, uh, if, you were, if these aircraft were deployed into a, a war zone, are those uh, civilian pilots expected to, to go along as well? As part of their contracts, that's what life holds for them, yes. We don't tend to use them first point of contact. We'll use the military guys and... So, so really, there, there aren't that many of the sponsored reservists that are trained up to do air fueling yet. Uh-huh. And then the long trip back to Bryce Norton. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, at least, at least two cups soon. of tea in five minutes. Yeah, yeah. Well, good luck to you, sir. <laughs> Thank you. Well, thanks very much again for coming on the shows, and uh, have, enjoy the rest of uh, React 2015. You too. I hope your listeners enjoy it. Thank you. We are standing next to a Royal Navy Merlin helicopter, and uh, with us is... Uh, Lieutenant Richard Knight, Royal Navy. So, a bit about the helicopter you fly, then. Yes, certainly. Um, This is the Merlin Mark II, so recently upgraded from the Mark I. Uh, Entered service in 2000, and uh, it's an anti-submarine warfare helicopter. So that's that's what we train to do. That's uh, what I've spent my career to date practicing to do, thankfully, never having to do it live. Um, (laughs) 
So to do that, we have various sensors on the aircraft, including a very high-powered radar for looking for surface uh, units. And we also have a sonar that we dip into the water, which we can then locate submarines with, track them, and then ultimately lead on to attack. And that's why uh, many people call us dippers for our uh, dipping sonar that we have, or pingers, alternatively, because we ping. That said, it's a very versatile helicopter. So, like I say, we've spent a lot of time exercising to do this, but realistically around the world there are Merlins deployed at the moment as we, as we talk right now, doing all sorts of operations, including uh, in the Mediterranean, where we're searching for those unfortunate migrants trying to cross over into Europe. Uh, a lot of my colleagues and a couple of Merlins are out there doing that right now. And uh, recently my ex-squadron 820 came back from Sierra Leone, where they were assisting with the Ebola crisis out there, uh, dropping vital aid into villages which thankfully hadn't been affected by the virus and therefore uh, were trying to stay isolated. How did they get their food supplies, medical aid, via the Merlin? So a very versatile beast here. On top of that, we can also act as a trooping uh, aircraft. So we re-roll very quickly our... Uh, our hard-working engineers on board can uh, take all the equipment out of the back of the aircraft, re-roll to carry uh, 16 troops in this uh, current variant, or we could just take everything out of the aircraft and, and use it as a stores uh, aircraft, so transferring stores backs and forwards. And obviously it doesn't work on the radio, but you guys can see that the big hook on the bottom of the aircraft, we can carry two and a half tonnes of equipment uh, on that, uh, which is the equivalent of a, a heavily armoured jeep or perhaps a, uh, an artillery piece, which, uh, which we've done before uh, for training as well. So you were saying, um, you were saying this is the, the Mark II. How does this differ to the Mark I? What, what were the upgrades, essentially? Yeah, the upgrades, um, you can't really see anything uh, on the external of the aircraft unless you're a, a real spotter, so I can talk you through that if you wish. But, um, but, uh, <laughs> but, but internally, it has been the majority of the upgrades. Computer systems have been uh, massively upgraded, made lighter, made smaller. So we've got a little bit more room in the back of the aircraft, and the cockpit's been redesigned as well. So for us flying up front, we've got a lot more access to the, uh, the tactical side of things, uh, which allows us to assist with the crew, the rest of the crew, in that tactical environment lessens the load and ultimately makes the aircraft more effective at what we do. So you were saying earlier that you, you, you can land this helicopter on, on a board a ship or on the back of a ship. How is that landing, you know, how difficult, obviously it's very difficult, how, it's, how is it landing this helicopter on the back of a ship? Uh, well, yeah, touch wood, it's, it's sort of worked, worked, <laughs> worked so far. Um, uh, yeah, we spend a lot of time training. Uh, it's about four and a half years of training to, to fly a helicopter in, in the Royal Navy. Uh, and obviously it, it comes up to deck landings being probably the, the, the ultimate of your, your flying experience. Um, there's been a few times, I must admit, uh, you're hovering alongside the, uh, the ship at night and it's rolling around and all you can see is a few, few little lights that you've got to line up on. Uh, it concentrates the mind, that's for sure. Um, I, I always say to the guys that these Zoom Zooms that are flying around at the moment, they, they can't land on the back of this. Uh, <laughs> so, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the things we do. And it, it, again, it adds to the, the capability of the aircraft. So us, together with HMS St Albans, which we're based on at the moment, the Type 23 uh, frigate, uh, we work together with the ship and we add an extra capability to them. We, we give them the range and the punching power to attack, locate those, those submarines or, or enemy vessels as well. What, uh, is this a three-engine helicopter or two engines? Uh, three, three engines, uh, plus an APU as well, so a, a, a power unit um, on board. So again, it's that flexibility, that that capability we can fly this aircraft on two engines um, what sort of issues does a single engine failure give you in the helicopter we're familiar with uh, how an engine failure affects a twin engine fixing aircraft but, uh, what does that mean for you on a helicopter how do you deal with an engine failure uh, well as, as, as a lot of you will know um, it depends uh, what environment we're in with the helicopter from the hover uh, we'll normally be able to hover on two engines in most scenarios so again it, it has a limited effect really and that was the, the design priority we spend a lot of our time in the hover when we're dipping as, as I discussed earlier on 
um, and therefore we want to keep us safe, we want to keep the aircraft safe, and ultimately we want to be able to carry on fighting. So in a, in a full-on war situation, I'm very confident this aircraft will be able to perform really, really well uh, and be you know, very survivable as well. And if you were unfortunate enough to have two of your three fail, can it still limp home on a single engine? Uh, no, unfortunately not. I'm having a very bad day at that point. Um, we'd, we'd, get, we'd, we'd no doubt get wet. Um, it would give us a little bit of um, cushioning on, onto the water. Soften the landing. Soften the landing. <laughs> but, uh, but again, you know, coming back to the survivable piece, uh, it's a fully marinized aircraft. We've got four flotation bags around. Um, unfortunately, there has been one, one incident where the aircraft ended up in the water. Um, all of the crew got out, and the aircraft actually floated on, on the surface, which is uh, quite a big step up from, from a lot of maritime aircraft. So, again, I'm very confident that you know, it will look after me. I suppose if you've got a twin-engine aircraft, a regular fixed wing, the engines are totally separate. They're, you know, they're on opposite sides of the aircraft, so one of them failing is not really going to have an impact on the other. But looking at this thing, you have three engines all in very close proximity. Does that add a, a sort of an extra level of, of danger? Or, you know, if, if one engine catastrophically falls apart, is it, it going to ruin others? the other one? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, not really. They're, they're, they're all boxed off. They've all got their separate fire systems, etc. Uh, and, and actually, because of the offset on the engines, even if one catastrophically failed, it's, it's not really going to cause too many too many issues. Um, oh, I'd say touch wood. We haven't had to see it yet. So, um, but, but again, it's just the nature of the beast. The, the engines have to be up there. They have to be near the, near the gearbox. And... I don't really understand helicopters. Never have. Obviously, the the, the lift is being <laughs> the the lift is coming from the rotors. But do the engines, the the exhaust outlets there, do they provide some sort of forward thrust? Uh, you're really testing my knowledge now. Um, I, there is there is a figure for the, the thrust they generate, but it's, it's minimal. It's measured in pounds. Um, the the engines are incredibly efficient at, at taking all the power out of the, the thrust flow, the, the jet uh, flux, uh, and and putting all of that power into the rotor gearbox. So simple answer is no the jet engine provides all the power to the gearbox which gives us the rotor thrust now we were talking to your colleague on the seeking yesterday and i was asking him about um operations at low level so obviously a lot of what they're doing is at less than 500 feet and i was asking him about collision avoidance and what sort of systems he has on board and basically what they had was the the mark one eyeball do you have anything slightly more sophisticated on the mill do you have tcas do you have egpws or something like that no, no, we don't have any of that. Um, by nature of our role, we spend a lot of our time over the water. Um, so we we don't have... Uh, it's, it's the Mark 1 eyeball again, um, and, that, and that's what we utilise. We have various other systems and planning tools, really. Um, again, uh, from day one, we're, we're trained in the, in the Navy uh, as, as aviators to, to plan very meticulously. We have all sorts of systems that we can deconflict with other aircraft. Um, it comes down to communication at the end of the day. So if we're operating with lots of other aircraft, it'll be a case of, of working together to make sure that we remain safe. However, at sea... Um, again, uh, we'll be operating under some sort of radar cover from our ship. And equally, we've got the, uh, the, the radar down, down on the front there with our radar operator on board. And we're able to give ourselves collision avoidance from other uh, naval aircraft, but also from shipping. So, uh, so we operate very, in a very low level environment over the water. Uh, by night, in fog, whatever conditions we need to, the submarine's not going to stop fighting. So we need to do that too. So therefore, we use the radar to, to essentially drive ourselves around surface ships. And we can also use the radar to bring ourselves back home, back to mother, the, the ship, um, at night, uh, in, again in fog, uh, terrible weather conditions. The, uh, the helicopter, the Merlin behind us here, the one you fly, it's got the uh, tail at the rear that can be obviously folded uh, for, ship, for, obviously for shipboard use. How, is that an easy operation to, to, to move that, you know, to, to take that tail and, and move it around, or is it manual or automatic operation? Yeah, it's uh, completely automatic. Uh, the, the rotor blades also fold back over the uh, over the tail. It's part of the operation, and it's one switch in the cockpit. You just uh, need some power on the aircraft, but you flash it up, and it just folds itself. 
and then it, it gets dragged into the hangar by a, a hydraulic system on board. Moving, moving away from the actual aircraft, I mean, we, we all had posters up in our room like uh, of aircraft and, and helicopters. And things. How did you move from what we all had essentially to where we're standing now, where, you, where, where you're flying these things? How did that? How did it happen? Well, well, actually, I went to university. Um, I wanted to be a scientist my entire life, um, and then and then halfway through university, I decided no, actually, I want to join join up the navy. Um, and, uh, and I want to fly. I, I used to come to air shows as a, as a small kid. My dad was an aeronautical engineer, so, uh, so I've, I've, I was bitten early. Yeah. And, uh, and I decided, actually, do you know what? That's, that's what I want to do. And it hasn't let me down so far. It's been an incredibly varied career. I've done an awful lot of um, stuff outside of flying as well, which, which keeps it exciting. Uh, it makes me really appreciate strapping myself into the aircraft and having a bit of, bit of uh, fun. Well, it's just fun. Some <laughs> hairy and interesting experiences. How do you feel about the Navy's current... Uh, lack of, of carrier ability. Um, I'll turn turn that the other way around. Really, actually, I'm quite excited about the future. So, um, and that's you know me being honest. We're, we're told to say that I know, but uh, but uh, I, I genuinely believe it. It's we, the future is very bright for us. We've got the two the two aircraft carriers coming online very soon. Um, the whole navy is gearing up for that. We are training for that. We're working towards that that concept. Uh, we've got the F-35 coming in, which will operate from the carriers and will give us that capability. And together with the Merlin, we'll be very much a centrepiece of that, looking after the carriers from an anti-submarine perspective. We'll, they will need to defend them, so we'll operate from them as well, um, together with all the other surface vessels, which will be looking after the, uh, the, the ships and the rest of the fleet on the submarines as well. Let's not forget them. <laughs> Do we still have... Was it HMS Ocean, the, the big helicopter carrier? That's still in service, right? Yes, it is. Yeah, and she's she's busy around the world. Um, so we're not totally without carrier at the moment. We, we have HMS Ocean, and obviously you can put these back uh, things on the back of frigates. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In terms of air cover, we, we don't need to just operate from the big carriers. The whole concept of the Merlin is to operate from well, what we call small ships, uh, the frigates and the destroyers. Um, so we, we can provide air cover in that respect. Um, obviously, it's, it goes without saying we haven't got the fighter cover at the moment at sea, but that's coming back very soon. Awesome. So what's the future hold for you then uh, within the Royal Navy? Are you going to continue flying the Merlin? Yeah, I suppose it depends how my boss writes my report. But, uh, <laughs> but, um, but you know, I, I'm thoroughly committed to it, so look, looking forward to the future. I, I really enjoy flying this, but I'm looking to explore other options in the Navy as well. So, so you know, go into other roles. And, and that's, again, one of the great things about the Navy is you can, you can move around um, the country physically, but you can also move into different roles, responsibilities. So, yeah, looking forward to that. So we ask this question every now and again, and we're going to pick on you uh, for this particular interview. <laughs> Don't panic. Um, given the chance to fly any aircraft in, in service in the world now, what would that aircraft be? Oh, that's a tough question, isn't it? I'm supposed to say Merlin, I suppose, aren't I? But um, I've never really thought about that, really. Um, there's so many of them. I, I, I'm particularly impressed by the Osprey uh, yeah. this, this, uh, this weekend. It's been a, been a really good display and a really good aircraft. Um, so it'd be, I suppose it'd be fun to go and see how that works, um, and yeah, I, I, helicopters definitely. I, I'm when I joined the navy, I, I was one of the few that said no, I want to fly helicopters. I don't want to fly zooms. You've, you've uh, never, never want to fly fixed wind. I think, I think I had um, one week during flying training when uh, when when I thought oh, maybe that'd be a good idea, and then instantly came back to the to the to the, the, the good side. So helicopters, they're just so much, so much more fun. <laughs> Well, Rich, thanks for, uh, for, for giving us your time this morning on the show and uh, thanks for answering the questions. I'm sure the listeners are going to love listening back to this on the show. And uh, on behalf of me, Carlos, Matt and Pip, uh, thanks for coming on the Plane Talking UK podcast and the Plane Safety podcast. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for coming over. Thank you.
So we hope you enjoyed those interviews then from Riyadh. They're the first batch mm. of uh, what we took at the show. Yes. Uh, we definitely enjoyed uh, to you know doing the interviews. Yeah, the, the, yeah. Everyone was so accommodating. All everyone, everyone we yeah. spoke to, um, you know, were really really kind to yeah. us. Everyone and, was uh, really up for, for talking, yeah. which was great. Which is great. And plus, we had some great. Uh, you you actually Matt got on board a uh, KDC ten, didn't you? Mm. The Royal Netherlands Air Force. Which one? Oh yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Sure number means nothing to me. Oh, what? Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a clue, Matt. That that was the one that we left our bags on. That's right, yes, yes. And the poor <laughs> poor men were desperately trying to have their lunch and we wouldn't leave them. Oh, the dear. Oh. But they were, they were safe. They were, they were on board the aircraft. They were, yeah. But yeah. So that uh, is where we're going to bring episode 70 to a close mm-hmm. of the Plain Talking UK podcast. Uh, we are going to be back again next week uh, for episode 71 and more interviews. Mm, definitely. Yep, uh, we just got a couple of uh, shout-outs to make uh, for some people. Um, obviously, Matty Fab, who we saw at the show, and um, Daniel Hannington, who we, sh- we saw at the show, and also someone else I spoke to on my way into the show mm. on uh, my Citizens Band Radio, or CB, <laughs> as we call it, as we do. <laughs> yeah. uh, so hello to Simon Walsh. Uh, mm-hmm. I, speak, I spoke to him on the CB on the way in to the show on the Saturday morning and which is quite he was actually Simon was staying in a campsite just around the corner from uh, from the actual show itself mm. so hello to you Simon I uh, hope uh, you're, you're a new listener to a show so I hope you enjoyed this show and uh, I better let Simon know that we've given them mention and stuff on the show um, <laughs> so yeah so mentioned to to you guys and also um, we've had Jonathan Warner hello to you as well Jonathan Warner I uh, hope you enjoy the show as well and Matt Matty Fab has uh, put a comment on on uh, Facebook saying mm. hi guys no webcam this week uh, no. No. No, no, no 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 we, we as it's a Friday I finish work at five and yeah. Uh, Nobody needs to see that. No, we, we don't know. But we will. We we're going to try and probably do a live show uh, beginning one, of August. I yeah, think, yeah, yeah. Once a month, we'll try and put mm. a live show out, possibly more. Mm. Um, see how the go- see how the feedback goes. Yeah, we'll see how the feedback goes. Definitely, yeah. So that's it then for episode seventy of the Plain Talking UK podcast. Uh, don't forget if you want to contact us. Yes, it's uh, all the usual places: uh, www.plaintalkinguk.com, uh, facebook.com forward slash Plain Talking UK, and on Twitter it's twitter.com forward slash Plain Talking UK. Don't forget also uh, Pip's uh, fabulous uh, little uh, podcast as well. That's worth a listen, and they get hold of that by going to. Yes, you can go to iTunes and search for the Plain Safety Podcast. Look for him on uh, iTunes, you'll find him on there. Also, plainsafety.com, if you go to his website, you can find uh, Pilot Pip on there. Mm. So that's it then for this week. Uh, We're going to go now because my wife has just come home. Indeed. And she'll be expecting a tea cooked for her. Some some kind of munch. I know, munching, yes. So for me, Carlos, uh, here in the kitchen studio, it's a very, very wet and damp, raining outside. (laughs) It is very wet. Goodbye. (laughs) And for me, it's also goodbye. Goodbye.